Hi, you beautiful flowers. Welcome to episode 15, chapter 9, I Can't Fit the Feelings In. This is a truly incredible Fiona Apple song called Every Single Night. I highly recommend checking out the music video for this. It's wild. It's insane. She's covered in octopi? Octopuses? It's octopi, right? We all decided on that as a species. The species of the human race. (laughs) Not octopies deciding. Anyway, they're sentient beings. We shouldn't eat them, despite how delicious they are. Um, that's for another day on another soapbox. I just want to explain why I've been off for a few weeks. Um, as you probably know, or are learning from the book, I suffer from chronic pain from my spinal surgery, which can be extremely debilitating, debilitating, as well as chronic fatigue and, of course, the myriad of mental illnesses that you will progressively learn about as the book goes on. So sometimes this may occur without warning. Obviously, if I know that I'm going away or I'm taking a break that I'm aware of, of of course, I will let you know in advance, but sometimes it will just happen that I am dead to the world. And um, yeah, I just need a little bit of time to recuperate. I try and let people know on the socials at Gutter Glitter Memoir on TikTok and Instagram. But if you aren't following me there or that's not your thing, um, apologies. This will be the only way you'll find out is that I'm not in your feed. So I do, um, I do apologize for that. But you know, the show must go on, as they say. Finally, the big announcement is here, getting my Oprah on. It's so exciting. You can finally order the book overseas via Amazon pretty much everywhere, including the US, Canada, Europe, UK, um, India, and even China. So pretty much the world over, I'm, you can search on Amazon, Gutter Glitter, in the book section and you should be able to find it, which is awesome. I also know that it is coming through other distribution channels um, slowly. So currently for US and Canada, you will be able to get it through Barnes and Noble and in the UK, Waterstones. Um, And there are a few others trickling in as well. If you're in Oz, the best way to do it is still to come through me via Etsy, just searching Gutter Glitter, of course. But it's all happening. It's very exciting. So you can get the book wherever you are now. The only difference, of course, is that you will not be able to get a signed copy if you're overseas because they do not come from me directly. They will go they will get printed in your country and then sent to you from there. So that's the benefit. You don't have to have postage from Australia to the other side of the world, which is outrageous. But unfortunately, you won't have my incredibly renowned signature and one day naturally worth millions upon millions of dollars. But look, you win some, you lose some. So that's it. I think we are heading into chapter nine. 
look, we are really getting through it. It's an exciting ride and I'm enjoying sharing it all with you. So let's get started. Chapter 9. I Can't Fit the Feelings In. Soundtrack, Fiona Apple, Every Single Night. My attachment to Simon grew with my paranoia. In turn, he withdrew, unable to cope with my neediness. This happened so slowly over the next two years that I barely saw it coming. It wasn't until 2014, after having lived together for about a year in our shoebox apartment in Fairfield, that the cracks we had been patching over became impossible to ignore. I was at a place in my healing where I was relatively self-sufficient, except for the pain when I did too much, which was often. I had been stuck in my body for so long that I dove back into life, desperate to make up for lost time. After graduating from yoga teacher training, I began a Bachelor of Health Science with the goal of becoming a naturopath. By the end of first year, I was struggling with my own hypocrisy. I was learning about herbs and spices that could supposedly cure all manner of ailments when I had just finished an experimental drug trial. I was ingesting a range of pharmaceuticals, and when I asked my medical team if drinking chlorophyll would aid my healing, I was met with, look, it's not going to make a difference, but if you like the taste, go ahead. Nobody drinks chlorophyll for the taste, Sandra. And there go the natural benefits of the placebo effect. Before the tumour, I would have fit perfectly with this crowd. I was this crowd. I had stacks of books outlining the healing powers of yoga, meditation and food as medicine. I made my own chai tea on the stovetop, had perfected bliss protein balls and soaked my oats overnight for an activated brekkie. Pete Evans would have been proud. More importantly, I believed in it. But now I didn't know what I believed. I certainly didn't think I would never have gotten sick if I'd only munched on some kale chips or that all it would take to cure my deeply ingrained mental health issues was to increase my omega-3s. However, I also wasn't convinced it wouldn't. I'd had my world shaken, and things that felt so clear-cut before now came with more questions than answers. I decided to continue with the study, but transferred to a nutrition degree. It was a shorter course, meaning I could reduce my classes and focus on food as medicine. By now, I had a relatively healthy relationship with eating and my love of cooking had continued to grow, so it made sense. In 2010, I entered a magazine cooking competition. I did so well that I was sent to Sydney to compete in a cook-off between bouts of chemo. I was so excited that I accidentally on purpose failed to mention my health issues, just in case they asked me to leave the competition for safety reasons. I smiled extra brightly to hide my sunken eyes, which must have paid off because I won. 
Seemingly, the judges enjoyed my prosciutto-wrapped chicken on a bed of parsnip mash. I got my face in Good Taste magazine, the Christmas special, if you don't mind, scored my first and only trophy, a gold-plated whisk that proudly sits atop my mantle. And to top it off, they threw me a cool ten grand. Yup. In the words of Chrissy Swan when she tasted my cooking on the morning show The Circle, Thank you, chicken thigh! I had wanted to spend the money on recording my first EP, which would, of course, propel me into superstardom. But I never got the opportunity because I'd been incapacitated for so long and the pressure on my lungs from the tumour made my voice embarrassingly weak. Four years later, the timing was finally right. I joined a heavy metal band as the lead singer, a kind of Evanescency meets Slayer vibe, a hardcore wall of sound that was layered with my floaty vocals. I wasn't particularly suited to the style, but my bandmates were great and we had fun. We wrote and recorded a handful of songs and even filmed our first music video, which gave me the confidence to take my solo music to the next level and finally record my solo EP. I worked with a producer to turn the songs I had written with Reese into complete studio recordings. I filmed two more music videos, organising every detail myself, from cast and crew to makeup and set design. It was intense. My weekends were taken up with rehearsals, studio sessions, planning meetings and filming, which sounds fun and glamorous, but in reality is really fucking exhausting. I began to realise I had enjoyed the idea of being a pop star more than the actual journey to become one. Shocker. Nonetheless, I ploughed ahead, also planning an album launch for the new record. The 18th of November at the Wesleyan in Northcote would see me debut my work. I had been working on some of these songs for as long as five years, and they were deeply personal to me. I assembled another band, this one made up of old school friends who had been exquisite musicians, but now worked corporate jobs because hashtag adulting. They brought my songs to life in a way that made me feel like a real musician. Their talent would be enough to override all my fraudulent smoke and mirrors. I had watched live music at the Wesleyan for years, and now a poster of my face hung on the wall. It was thrilling. I also bounced back to body balance and began to teach yoga as soon as my body would allow. I needed the money now that I was living out of home, so I pushed myself to go back to work before I was ready. Luckily, I had worked out the perfect ratio of opioids to active cognitive function, meaning I could mask my pain enough to teach without slurring my words. Life hacks of an addict. Why didn't I wait until I was fully healed? Why is teaching a yoga class to 10 geriatrics in a gym so important? The truth is, it isn't. 
They could have replaced me in a heartbeat and the world would have kept turning. But to me, it symbolised that I was getting my life back. I was making money, not much, but it was my own money. I could make it because I was able-bodied. It wasn't given to me because I fit into a box on a form that said I was temporarily disabled. I could walk. Not only walk, but bend and stretch and move in an accurate enough depiction of what my students should aim for. My body had use. I had use. So if I had to be a little high to get myself to that sweatbox of a room where I was underappreciated and underpaid, I was going to do it. Only I wasn't just a little high. I was fucking flying. The dose I was on would leave the average person damn near comatose. But I had been on extreme doses for so long that I thought I was perfectly fine. I could drive to work, educate people about yogic philosophy, and perform a headstand if need be. I was a high-functioning addict, but I was also in legitimate pain. So it was completely justified, right? As I finished a class and the painkillers wore off, I would feel everything. Exercise creates micro tears in the muscles, which in repairing come back bigger and stronger. It was as though I could feel this process occurring in every cell. My broken muscles and scar tissue were forced to move against their will and beyond their current capabilities. Ripping and tearing, hot and throbbing. Once home, I would cover myself head to toe in ice packs, trying to dull the screaming deep within my bones. As I collapsed in bed, I try to recall anything from the class I had taught only moments ago. Often, I'd come up blank. Not a downward dog, not a happy baby pose, nothing. That was the opioids. They didn't just numb your body, they blissfully numbed your entire being. Body, mind, and spirit. I've lost entire days to those things. Weeks, probably. Even now, I'll occasionally feel the familiarity of a memory I can't quite latch onto. Like waking from a dream and desperately trying to catch it before it slips from my mind. The difference between these elusive memories and a dream is the accompanying shame and guilt that inevitably follows. I've done something shameful. I can sense that. But all I've got to show for it are mismatched flashes in my brain and truth be told, most of the time I don't want to unlock them. Around the same time, I had an issue with crashing cars. I don't mean 
a little bit of a bingle here or a scratch there. I totaled three cars in five years. That's not normal. Naturally, I assumed I was just a really terrible driver, but in hindsight, I was high as fuck. There was an incident where I could see the accident coming, playing out before me as if I was watching it in slow motion. I knew I should do something, but my body and brain didn't connect in time, leaving me to cruise into the new shiny Lexus in front of me. Like Daria, lamely reaching for the basketball in gym class, I watched it happen and internally shrugged. Whoops. By November 2014, I was frantic all the time. But frantic was good. Frantic meant I was achieving things. Somehow, in my rush to conquer the world, I ended up booking my album launch during exam week at uni. No worries, I got this! I thought as I pushed down my growing anxiety with a couple of painkillers. Simon and I also created two websites, a personal one for my music and another for yoga and well-being called Nice Asana. Pronounced asana. Asana is the Sanskrit word for yoga postures. It's very witty and hilarious once explained. This website would include healing recipes, regular blog posts, and videos depicting the benefits of yoga asana and pranayam, breathwork. I organized a recipe photo shoot for the website with my friend Camelia, Cami, as the photographer, who had been the director of photography on my solo music videos. We'd connected over a love of food, creativity, and sarcasm. I had prepared all the recipes, including the piece de resistance, my blueberry and lavender vegan cheese cake. Look, it was a confusing time for everyone, okay? MasterChef was using lavender as a herb and cashews became a cheese. No one knew what was going on. The food was looking good and I could see everything coming together. Make way, Martha Stewart, there's a new bitch in town. We worked a long day, but I was happy with the end result and, strangely, by the time I got home, I wasn't tired. Having chronic fatigue syndrome since my anorexia, this was impossibly rare. Suspiciously rare. Did Cammy secretly spike my food with ginseng or caffeine? Are those antioxidant-rich blueberries working their magic? I reasoned it must be the adrenaline one gets after a productive day's work and moved on. I anticipated my energy crash to hit as I drove home, but it never did. When I got in, I began excitedly chatting with Simon, telling him in explicit detail what Cammy and I had been working on. I must have been rambling because when I stopped talking, he asked, Have you taken something you seem on huh what no what what do you mean i'm fine i'm great 
I'm just excited about how the images turned out. The food was so good. And Cami, oh man, she is so talented. Ah, oh, you have to try my salmon. It's to die for. I'll make it tonight or tomorrow. When do you want it? What was I saying? Oh, salmon. Huh? What? No. What? What do you mean? I'm fine. I'm great. I'm just excited about how the images turned out. The food was so good. And Cammy, man, oh, she's so talented. Oh, you have to try my salmon. It's to die for. I'll make it tonight. Tomorrow? When do you want it? What was I saying? Salmon. Simon looked at me, bewildered, but said nothing. Okay, I'm going to go for a run. Let me know about Dins, I said, blasting finger guns at him. Choo-choo. I decided to go for a run because by evening I was still wired. Please note, I do not run. I hate to run. I am from a family of round, squishy people. Our bodies do not move that way. We are less effortless gazelle and more slinky giving up halfway down the steps. But on this day, I ran and I did not stop. I felt like I was flying, as though running was easy. Running has never been easy, people. I ran full pelt for half an hour before I arrived at the local river. I looked out at the glistening water, or sludge, through the iridescent green trees, brown and sunburnt, and up at the pink-orange setting sun, whooped a fucking dude. And I began to weep tears of joy over the beauty of nature. Me, crying real human tears over a sunset. No shade if that's your thing, but I have never been that person. I'm a glass half empty kind of gal. I'm, life is meaningless and we're all going to die. I don't wake up grateful for another day before sniffing a flower and gazing gratefully at the morning dew. I'm motherfucker over mother nature every day of the week. It was at this point I started to realise something was up. I looked around on what was realistically a grey, dreary day and was utterly overwhelmed with gratitude for life itself. Isn't existence wonderful? The birds were singing, the air was soft and comforting. And all around me was a collection of the most vivid, kaleidoscopic colours I had ever seen. It was like discovering a flavour you had never tasted before. It was impossibly moving. It was as if I was seeing the world for what it really was for the first time and it was fucking mesmerising. Belinda Carla was right. Heaven really is a place on earth. Tears continued to stream down my smiling face as I ran home. Party in the USA bopping between my ears. 
it wouldn't have felt out of place to fling myself joyously around a lamppost. I was just waiting for the moment when a delicate little bluebird would perch itself atop my finger and join me in song. Life was picturesque. I didn't sleep a wink that night. I lay in bed smiling to myself, staring at the ceiling with ideas and inspiration circling my mind. My heart felt so full and warm. I would remain in this euphoric state for a whole month. It was bliss. It's the happiest, most content, connected, loved, energetic and powerful I have ever felt. It was like cocaine, ecstasy, falling in love and molten chocolate all wrapped up in one beautiful orgasmic moment. I had been miserable and burdened my entire life and now I was being let into the secrets of the universe that had been lying dormant in my mind all these years. What a gift it was to finally be able to see the truth. The world's true beauty was mine and I couldn't wait to share it. Who needs drugs when life is this spectacular? That was a thought I genuinely had right before the crash. These days, I spend my life trying to forget how blissful a manic episode can feel. Because chasing that illusion means running headfirst into death. A few weeks later, after landing in my worst depression to date, I was diagnosed with bipolar spectrum disorder. What you're describing is a manic episode. I'm going to place you on some mood stabilizers for your bipolar. My psychiatrist growled as he looked down at the papers in his lap rather than up at me. My what? I had never warmed to this guy. Where my psychologists over the years had all nurtured me to a certain degree, this doctor was clinical and direct in a way I found rude. You have major depressive disorder, and now you are describing experiencing a strong manic episode. So I would suggest you have bipolar. You also have a family history of it, yes? Well, my dad's undiagnosed, but yeah... He has epilepsy, so the medication he took for that kind of helped his bipolar episodes. Ah, yes, it's the same medication. Different doses, but yes, it would help a little. Hmm. So, which one do I have? Aren't there two types? These days, we think of bipolar more on a spectrum. But if I had to put a label on it, I would suggest you have bipolar 2 with hypomanic episodes or less severe mania and more instances of depression. Fantastic. I was jealous of all the people who got to experience full-blown mania. It must have been next-level magical. I wanted nothing more than to feel that euphoric high again. What you don't see in films about manic pixie dream girls is the much more common and seriously debilitating plummet into depression. 
even when you do reach the highest highs of mania, post-manic depression is horrific, dangerous and inescapable. After all, what goes up must come down. Thus is a psychiatric law of gravity. You go from an unimaginable state of elated euphoria to passionately hating yourself and everyone around you. Your energy, once unstoppable, is now depleted to immobile exhaustion. Your skin, which felt like it cloaked your bones in a warm hug, now stings and prickles at the slightest touch. Your body aches inside and out, and life feels meaningless once again. Over the years, Dad and I would very occasionally find ourselves in the kitchen at the same time and try to chat the way we thought a father and daughter should. We tried awkwardly to follow basic tropes we had seen in films and stumbled our way through stunted conversations. Within minutes, we would end up in tears talking about life and death, heartbreak and mental illness. This was more comfortable for us. Dad had many quirks, but to this day, he is the only person I have ever met who knew exactly what it was like to live inside my mind. By 2014, Dad had been in the United Arab Emirates for almost a year attempting to salvage a failing oil and gas company. After I was diagnosed with bipolar 2, he started calling me once a week. He would walk me through his experience living with mental illness and what he had found worked for him. He told me about the importance of routine, regular bedtimes and minimising workload. He calmly listened as I told him how much I was drinking and how badly I wanted to die. If he was afraid for me, he never let it show, but I knew he must be by the sheer consistency of his communication. We had never spoken this often or as openly in my entire life. He never judged me, he just listened and understood. Sometimes he would regale me with stories of his own impulsivity, such as how he would agree to take on piles of work when manic, only to crash and burn as the depression set in. Overspending was never my thing. I leaned much more on substance abuse to make me feel better. But Dad, being straight edge, had his own ways of acting out. For example... He bought an abandoned coconut plantation in Fiji with dreams of building a mansion. Normal. He didn't ask mum or discuss this with anyone. He just went for it when a good deal came up. It's going to have six bedrooms, so when you get married and have children, you can all come and stay for as long as you want. A lot of... Okay, dadding went on in our family during that period, as we all quietly wondered when lucidity would return. The way he talked about his plans for the land was both insane and incredibly sweet. He was like a child imagining a perfect universe around him. Sounds wonderful, dad. I can't wait. I'd reply, 
genuinely excited to see how this played out. It was pretty outlandish, but Dad had always dreamed of retiring to Fiji. His parents had lived there for a while when he was young, and although Dad attended boarding school in Scotland, his holidays were spent with his family in Fiji. He fondly remembered those times as the happiest of his life. To pay for this staggering investment, he took a position in Ras Al Khaimah in the UAE. It was a highly stressful job. The pressure was insurmountable and the culture was bullying. But within two years, Fiji would be paid off and Dad would be free to live out his dream. That was his plan, anyway. I've noticed that every day I spent manic, I tended to have three times that in depression. This meant that following my month-long energy-filled love fest, I sunk into major depression and severe exhaustion for three months. It sucked. I'd just gotten out of bed post-surgery and now I was dragging my ass back in. Over the years, I developed a habit of joking about my fatigue because I'm embarrassed by how much sleep I need. In a world where we glorify busyness and the grind, admitting you need to rest is akin to giving up. I've been trying to get the nickname Sleeping Beauty to catch on, because it makes chronic fatigue syndrome sound like a delicate, sighing damsel. (gasps) Rather than a pale vitamin D deficient vampire who hasn't showered in a week. Alas, it has yet to take off. For months I slept, lamented the energy I'd previously been lapping up, and cried tears of frustration as I turned down plans and watched my work pile up. I took to lying naked on the small square of overgrown grass in the backyard to soak up as much sunshine as possible, hoping this might restore my depleted body. I basically became a kind of cold-blooded lizard woman, only scurrying inside at sundown. I began seeing a psychiatrist who placed me on mood stabilizers to remarkable effect. I had spent 24 years feeling as though my head was a computer with 16 tabs open. But with the new medication on board, I could slow down time to a pace I could keep up with. Like Superman, I could change my internal orbit to a tempo that worked for me. I could focus during lectures and for the first time could listen to and absorb what my teachers were saying. I had spent my entire schooling believing I was dumb because it took me longer to learn basic skills and I found it hard to retain information. But I was starting to realise that perhaps I wasn't stupid. Maybe I had been managing too many tabs all this time and couldn't filter through the noise. It had always been exhausting and loud inside my head but I had no idea how intense it was until it stopped and the world went quiet. So quiet. Dare I say, peaceful? 
I was finally living in real time with the rest of the world. No longer worried about the future or wallowing in the past. I could stop running and just be. With the distraction of my anxious striving now gone, I discovered that what was left was a very sad little girl who didn't know how to be still. I saw a healer once who said when she looked into my mind, she saw a girl. This young girl was dancing uncontrollably around a mirror. She danced round and round in circles so fast that she created smoke under her busy feet. She spun and twirled in exaggerated colours, all to distract the world from seeing her perception that she had nothing of worth to offer. Razzle fucking dazzle. After the session, the healer encouraged me to spend time sitting on the beach and watching the ocean. As I walked to my car, I could smell the ocean and hear the waves crashing. I thought about following the path down to the beach for a moment, then got in my car and drove home. I was far too busy to stop. My rapid transition from the erratic lightness of mania into the despair of depression was too much for Simon, so he checked out. I don't blame him, really. Once again, I was sick and incapacitated. But now I was also an emotional black hole, desperate to be saved. He began to resent me. It was as if I was holding up a mirror to his inability to heal me. I would spend hours each night sobbing in our bedroom, desperate for him to hold me and tell me it would be okay. That I would be okay. But he didn't. He sat in the lounge room playing video games with his friends through a headset and let me cry until I passed out from exhaustion. Like a baby, he was sleep training. I've never felt so lonely as I did in that bed, waiting for the man I loved to notice me. That's when I, in turn, began to resent him. The problem I found with having such an extended period of life-changing euphoria is that nothing could compare. Even once I moved out of the intense depression that followed, I was still only back to baseline, and having seen and felt all the infinite joy of the universe, baseline itself was depressing. The palette of brand new colours disappeared and in their place were lifeless, dull variants of grey. The smile was wiped from my face as quickly as it had come and I felt angry and bored by the reality of life. Why should I live in this shitty reality when all the pleasures of the universe lay dormant somewhere in my brain? Happiness felt so close, yet I couldn't unlock it. It's the most medically tangible mental illness has ever felt. Nothing had physically changed around me, but at the same time, I was changed forever within the confines of my tiny mind. 
It was like I had been watching life in HD and suddenly woke up to grainy static intercepted with jarring glimpses of Friends episodes from the 90s. Me to brain. Could you be any more disappointing? Up to this point, I had been able to manage my opioid dependence to a degree. But this experience rapidly propelled me into severe addiction. The pills would never achieve the ecstasy my brain had splashed out all on her lonesome. But it helped to feel as though I had some semblance of control over how I experienced the world again. I didn't know if I would ever have a manic episode again. But at least I could buy myself a small glimpse of chemical happiness once in a while. Thank you so much for listening. That was chapter nine, I Can't Fit the Feelings In. I highly recommend going and checking out the Fiona Apple song associated with this chapter. It's called Every Single Night. And as far as I can tell, as someone who clearly suffers from mental health issues, I think this is a really great depiction um, of of her experience and other people's experiences alike. Uh, So uh, it just was the perfect song for me to include with this chapter. And it made me feel less alone and more seen, which ultimately is why I wrote this book and why I write music. So it's nice that I get that same thing from other musicians as well. And that's why, you know, that's why we create art. That's why we do what we do. (sighs) Life imitating art, imitating life or some poetic shit like that to end the episode. (laughs) And bow close life goes on except they don't close because I need to tell you one more thing once again the book is now available in almost all the countries you can get it on Amazon pretty much anywhere in the world you can still get it from me directly on Etsy if you're in Australia that's the best way to do it and Anything else you need to know will be in the show notes. Come join me on Instagram and TikTok at Gutter Glitter Memoir. And please, if you like the show, give us a five stars and a review. If you have two seconds in your day, it would make mine. Lots of love and I will see you next episode.